0: You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit CalvaryGravenhurst.com. Thank you uh, so much to Alyssa and Norma. That was fantastic. I love you guys. I love worshiping with you. Happy Thanksgiving to you. It is so good to be here. Um, I just love church. I love gathering with you guys and praying and worshiping with you and diving into God's Word. Um, Like Alyssa talked about, we are starting a new series in Galatians that I'm also very excited for. Um, And so the title of the series is Only One Gospel, and the title of today is Only One Gospel, um, because today in the introduction he's going to lay out the Argument for the Book, and I'm excited to explore that with you. Um, as a reminder, maybe if you go off to Thanksgiving dinners and stuff, um, if you've got family or friends that you've been talking to about the Lord and they need a Bible, take the one from the seat in front of you, give it to them as a free Thanksgiving gift. Um, there's no better gift we can give people uh, than the Word of God. I also want to encourage you as we go through Galatians to read ahead each week. Um, If you can read it, obviously that's great, but if you get a chance to actually read it, pray about it, meditate on it, um, do some of the things that Dustin was talking about last week, that's going to be really good for you, right? It's going to be good not only for you to be able to discern whether um, the things that I'm teaching you are right and good and from God, um, but it's also going to give you a chance to learn about all the other things that I don't have time to teach Right? One of the things I always tell you is I've always got way too much material, way too many things to say. And because there's so much in God's Word, there's so much in these verses. And so um, if you take some time, study things on your own, um, we can't hit everything. And so I would encourage you to do that. But let's pray, and then we're going to dive into God's Word together. God, we come before you, and we praise you. God, you are King God most high, um, robed in majesty, Lord, so far above us, you are um, transcendent far above anything in everything in anyone except you and you alone. Lord, we praise you um, for your love. We praise you for your justice and your wrath and your goodness and your faithfulness and your love. Lord, we come and confess that we are nothing. God, I am a sinful sinful man who needs you desperately. And we come as sinful, sinful people, God who struggle and fight and flail. Lord, and we need you, God, today. We do come and we say thank you for so many different things. Our hearts, God, are overflowing with thankfulness. We don't wanna be like the lepers who never came back um, to say thank you. And so we come and say thank you for this building that you've provided for us. God, um, what an incredible um, act of your faithfulness. And so we just come and acknowledge and say, thank you, God, you are so good. And thank you for caring about us. Thank you for preserving your word throughout history for us at this very moment. And thank you for loving us, God, not to leave us in our sin, but to save us. Lord, we are so grateful for that. I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight that your Holy Spirit and would powerfully move in our hearts this morning as we study your word in your name. Amen. All right, let's start by doing the best thing we can do with our time and read God's word together. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches In Galatia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We're going to start with an overview um, of Galatians. It's always important for us, and every time we start a new book, we're going to do this to understand what the book is talking about and to understand a bit of the background. It helps you a lot as you go into trying to understand why God put this book in his word. And so we see there quite clearly in our text that the author is the Apostle Paul, and I always like to just remind you that you can just place um, this in history, right? This is not happening in some crazy voodoo land. This was happening throughout history, and so this is a map of um, the Roman Empire when the New Testament was being written, and if you got really good eyes, you can find Galatia. You can see it there um, close to Asia, there in The orange, Um, Cappadocia, is in the blue. And then Galatia is sort of in that reddy pink, um, sort of just below the Pontus Exinus. And so that's where Galatia is. If you zoom in a little bit on Galatia, um, you can see that there's a bit of a um, a discrepancy sort of... uh, understanding of scholars trying to figure out exactly who Paul was writing to. It doesn't change anything about the book. It doesn't change anything about the message. But I just want you to know that there's some scholars still trying to figure some of these things out because there's two different Galatians in history. Right, Similar time periods, but you see in that dark circle, that um, is ethnic Galatia. That's the kingdom of Galatia, as it says there on the map. And then there's political Galatia, which was that Roman province of Galatia. And so he says, I write to the churches in Galatia. And so scholars just try to figure out, hey, is he writing to the kingdom? Is he writing to ethnic Galatians? Or is he writing to the political um, province, Galatia? So does it change things? No, not really. But I just think it's important for you to know that these kind of things are going on as we try to understand God's word. But I want to spend the majority of our time in the overview talking about the problem. And you saw right there in the text right away that um, there's a big problem that Paul is writing to Um, the Galatians to address. And like Alyssa talked about, almost every other letter he he goes into a big thing about being thankful um, for these Christians. And in this one, there's no thankfulness. He gets right to the point because there's a problem and it's a big one. Um, And so we want to understand this problem because it's critical to understanding the whole Book. Do you remember back to high school? Some of you have good memories, some of you have bad memories of high school. But if you remember back to high school, it's kind of like math class. Do you remember when the teacher would come in and they would say, we're going to start a new unit today and you really need to pay attention on this first day because everything else in our unit is going to be built off of the first day. And some of you were Gold Star students, and you had a backpack filled with 8,000 highlighters and 2,300 gel pens, and you were ready to go. God bless you, people. Um, and then some of you were like, you know what? I'm calling your bluff, teacher. I, I'm calling your bluff. I don't think this is really real. Um, and so I would just encourage you, if you're one of those, God bless you, too. Uh, but don't call my bluff, um, because I'm not bluffing. Everything in the book is going to be written about the problems that we're going to discuss here And here's the problem. The problem is this, that the Galatian Christians have started to follow a perverted gospel. It's not completely different. Not everything is different, but it's still a false gospel because it's not the one true gospel. It's been distorted. And there's many different ways to distort the gospel, but in this case specifically, it was being added to. There was a group of so-called Christians called Judaizers, right? People claiming to be Christians, right? Following some of the Christian teachings from Jewish descent. And they were pressuring the Galatian Christians to undergo circumcision and submit to the law of Moses as a means of completing their Christian experience. They're saying you're not real Christians if you don't get circumcised and if you don't follow the law. And here's why. See, allowing Gentile converts, right? Gentile, anybody who's not a Jew, to claim identification with the blessings promised to Abraham and his descendants would have been deeply, deeply offensive to many Jews. And you say, why? Let's talk about it. It all starts with this, the Abrahamic covenant. If you remember back to Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, God says this to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God promised some things here to Abraham. The first thing that he promised them was land, right? So he promised them land. So I'm going to take you to this land, and the land is actually very specifically laid out in Genesis chapter 15. The dimensions, exactly where it would go, like Dustin encouraged you last week, I would encourage you, go look at that later. Don't just take my word for it. And then it's actually expanded in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The next promise that he's given is seed, right? Descendants of people, Then we see the blessing of God and then a very specific blessing, right? That through Abram's line, the whole world is going to be blessed and going to be rescued. And who's that through? It's through Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who brought that to the whole world. And this covenant was an unconditional covenant. If you remember back, um, if you were in the Old Testament class or we've talked about it before, in church there's two kind of covenants that God made with his people. So one kind of covenant that God made with his people was he said, if you follow me and obey these things, then I will bless you. And if you don't follow these things, then instead of blessings are going to come, then instead hardships are going to come. And a large chunk of the Old Testament is us watching that play out where the people don't follow God, and then God does exactly what he says. That's a conditional covenant. But this covenant that he made with Abram was unconditional. Okay, And the reason we know that is in Genesis 15. And if you remember in Genesis 15, if you remember reading it, there's a really wild ceremony where a whole bunch of animals are completely cut in half and there's fire and they're placed um, like this along in a big line. And normally what would happen in that day when they were making a covenant, when they were making an agreement, is both parties would walk together through the cut-up animals, right? Basically signifying, if I don't hold up my end, may it be like these animals that are completely sliced in half. But in Genesis 15, that's not what happens. In Genesis 15, um, Abram's actually asleep, and God alone walks through the covenant ceremony. And what he's telling Abram is, I'm going to do this unconditionally. I will hold up this covenant, this agreement, what I have said to you on me and me alone. It won't rest on you. And then in Genesis 17, God gives Abraham the right of circumcision. If you remember circumcision, circumcision was given as a specific sign that you were included in the covenant blessing from God. And so God's intention was that people would carry a lifelong flesh mark that they belonged to God's people and would experience this blessing. And this is why this was so offensive to these Judaizers, right? That these Gentiles, right, not Jews... Um, we're claiming in the minds of the Judaizers, they were claiming the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, right? To be the people of God, to be marked as the people of God by the Holy Spirit and to get the blessing of God, yet without doing the things that God had outlined in the covenant. And then this, of course, extended to the Mosaic law as well, because God gave them that rite of circumcision and then He gave them that covenant that If you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you don't do these things, it won't go well for you. And so a good Jew would keep everything outlined in the law um, by God. And the law was basically made up of three parts. It was made up of the Ten Commandments, the ordinances, and the worship system. And the worship system, remember, included things like the priesthood, the tabernacle, the offerings the festivals, those sort of things. And those are outlined in Exodus and Leviticus, which I know is all your favorite book. And so uh, when we say Mosaic law, or Galatians a lot is just going to call it the law, when it talks about that, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about the laws outlined there, that conditional covenant. And so these Jewish Christians Right? are trying to mix two things together. And here's what they're doing. They were holding on to the law as the hope of their salvation and blessing. And Paul's trying to tell them, you're missing the point. Jesus is the hope for your salvation and blessing. The law's job was to point to that. It was to show the holiness of God in contrast to the desperate, sinful state of humanity. Could, could anyone keep the law? No, right? They had to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And what did that remind them of? It reminded them of the holiness of God and just how sinful they were. And it was reminded that the only way that it could be atoned for was through blood. That was the point of the law, It was to highlight just how much we needed God. And so Paul's gonna argue and he's gonna try to remind them, we needed the law for a time but not forever, because its purpose was to point us towards Christ. It was to point us towards Jesus. But now that Christ has come, we look to him. So that's the first part of the problem. That's the first part of this contention that Paul is going to talk to the Galatians about. Here's the second part. Okay, The second part revolves around salvation history. So basically, you can sum it up like this. Paul's quarrel with the Judaizers can be boiled down to a difference in opinion over just how destructive the cross of Christ is for the history of salvation. See, for the Jews, they had a very set understanding of salvation history. There was an old age of sin, and then there was a new age of righteousness, And they were looking for a decisive intervention from God to end the present age and to usher in a new age of salvation. And since they looked around at the world and they saw all the sin, they thought this can't possibly be the new age of salvation. But what Paul's going to try to show them here in Galatians is he's going to try to show them that the decisive work of God that they were looking for was Christ coming to Earth, to die on a cross. The cross of Christ is that disruptive event. That's God intervening, God coming down to move us from the age of sin to the age of Salvation, And he's going to argue that we're in this new age of salvation because as believers, we're rescued from evil, we're rescued from sin, we're rescued from death, and given new life, given new identity, marked as the people of God in salvation through the work of Jesus on the cross. This is his contention. This is his argument. And his argument actually bookends the book of Galatians. If you look in your Bibles, hopefully you've got them open in um, chapter 1, verse 4, what does it say? He argues very specifically that Jesus came for a specific reason, right? That he would take us out of what? This present evil age. That's what he's referring to, right? The, the, the old age that the, the, the Jews had in their mind, right? This age of sin. He's saying, Jesus came to rescue you from the present evil age, And then in the end of the book, if you look at 614 and 615, if you flip to the end, um, the word world, which gets used many times in the rest of the Bible, um, but this one you just have to believe me on because we don't have time to look at all of them. That word world is conveying the same thing. It's conveying the same idea of being trapped in, in this old age of sin. And then look at the next verse. What does he say? He contrasts that with the new creation. The new creation, all that language about the new creation in the New Testament is showing us getting their minds wrapped around the fact that they are in this new age of salvation through the work of Jesus. And so summary, we've got a, uh, we've got a group of people claiming to be Christians, right? They're teaching a gospel, right? That's what Paul said, um, and they believed some of the same things that Christians believe. They believed the Messiah had come, um, but they believed that faith in the Messiah was now necessary for identification with Abraham's people. So they're basically saying, we got to keep everything that God said before, and now we got to add this stuff to it. That if you want to be identified as God's people, as Abraham's people, you've also got to add these things. And they were apparently willing to let Gentiles in because that's not their contention here. Other books, right, that's a contention. right? Remember um, books like Colossians where he talks about the mystery? That's the mystery, right? But they also insisted that if the Gentiles want to come in, right, to be Abraham's people, to be God's people, right, because that's what that really meant in their mind, if they wanted to experience true salvation, they needed to be circumcised and follow the law. And to all of this, Paul's going to argue, no. There's only one gospel, and these people are adding to it. They're perverting it. You don't need to follow the law anymore, because the one who it was pointing to has come to die in your place for the salvation of your soul. This is the gospel. And so that is our summary, and I hope you've grabbed those things Um If you missed some of that, I'm going to put some of these slides. Um, Alyssa's always going to have them up with the sermon notes um, on the website so you can take a look at stuff. You don't have to write furiously um, because that's important. It's important to know because if you read Galatians this afternoon, go look at it. All those things are going to point back to those two things. And now let's dive into our text. Um, And before we look at the first five verses, I just want to address the text as a whole that we looked at. When we read the text together, I hope you felt the gravity of this letter. I hope you felt the passion and the conviction with which Paul is writing, right? Because that's gonna be carried through all of book of Galatians. You can't just read this opening section and feel like this is a nice fluffy religious text, right? Like that's not what's happening. <laughs> a writer described it, you can't do that anymore than you can examine a hot coal with your bare hands. Right? And Is that not so true? And have you thought why is he writing like this? Why does Paul write like this? He writes like this because souls are at stake, not only for eternity, but right now. Right? The gospel is not only good news for eternity. It's also good news for right now. And there's a war going on for the souls of the Galatians. And God just impressed on my heart this week, may we feel the same passion for the purity of the gospel that Paul feels in this letter. Let's start by looking at the letter. Let's look at these first five verses. Um, they're basically his greeting, to the letter, and I want you to look right at the start. He, what does Paul tell us? He says, Paul, an apostle, right? Not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so what's the assumption right off the bat, right? If you haven't read, Second, uh, if you haven't read Timothy, if you haven't read Second Peter, um, and you don't know this, what's the assumption right off the bat? The assumption is that if you read Galatians, you're hearing directly from God right? Because what's an apostle? An apostle is someone who speaks with the authority of the one they were sent by. And he's saying, I wasn't sent by men or a man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Those are my credentials. And so as he speaks, he's saying, this is from God. And if I took a poll and I asked how many of us believe this, most of us would raise our hands, wouldn't we? We would say, yes, I believe that this Um, is God's word coming directly from God? If I followed that up with a question and asked how many of us truly live like that, how many of us pant for the word of God? How many of us beg for the word of God? How many of us crave the word of God? I think we'd have a few less hands raised. See, so many of us are tempted to cry out to Jesus for a dream or a vision or a sign, and God's doing some of those things. Praise God for that. Yet we put so little effort, right? Somewhere a lot of the times between little to none in giving um, God's word its due into reading and understanding and actually practicing the word of God that's been preserved by God throughout history for us right now as he speaks to us. We give excuses about our time or our intellectual ability or our inadequacy. But I think often we don't just simply admit the truth. That for some of us, we're just, if we're honest, not that serious about God's word. We don't stake our lives on it. We proclaim its power and yet we leave it on the shelf or by our bed or unopened on our phone. And God convicted me of this um, this week. I've been working with um, some people, doing my best to be helpful. And uh, we've had a couple of meetings and as I was praying for them, Um, God brought a strong conviction, um, not on them, but on me, um, that we hadn't actually opened his word together. Did we talk about him a lot? (laughs) Yeah, that was the point of the conversation. Did we try to follow his word? Yeah, that was the point of the conversation. We talked a lot. But did we actually open his word and let it speak to our hearts and demonstrate our belief that he's the one that will bring true, lasting, real change? No, we didn't. And that was my fault. And so I had to very genuinely apologize and pledge for that not to happen again. And I wish I were alone in this boat of painful conviction, um, but I don't think I am. Um, Many people, when I ask, um, what what have you been reading in your Bible recently? What are you learning about the Lord? Which, by the way, it's not a test, right? Like, that's not a pastoral test. That's me just genuinely wanting to know what God is teaching you because I want to learn and I want to know more about God. But when I ask that question, people end up often talking about a podcast or a book that they've been reading or squirming their way out of the question very uncomfortably in a way that makes it painfully obvious that scripture reading for them is either gone by the wayside or simply gone in one ear and out the other. Right? They maybe, maybe they've read it, but they've never really actually studied it or planned on allowing God's word to actually change their life. So they're not experiencing any of the change. The problem is, for some, they actually have no real desire for Jesus to be king of their life. And for some of you, this is your issue. And if this might be you, there is nothing more important you can do this afternoon than go and figure out if this is your issue. Because your life's at stake, your joy's at stake, your peace is at stake, both now and in eternity. And for others of you, you have a desire for Jesus to be king but I think you may have developed an unhealthy relationship with scripture where the things that you have read have simply become suggestions or notions, right? And never on purpose, right? That's not the goal. It's not on purpose, but it's how it's practically playing out in your life. Or for some, maybe we use scripture as a hope to boost our self-esteem or our mood. For some, we grow our intellectual pride or our moralistic pride or to simply just check a box. But we don't stake our life on God's word. Instead, all it does is it lives up here in our heads in a theoretical exercise, instead of being lived out in life-changing power in your life. Let me ask you this. What is the last thing God's word has changed in your life? What's the last thing that God's word has changed in your life? What's the last thing that God has grown in you through his word? How are you becoming more like him? And here's the most important question. How long ago was that? So many of us can cling to something that God did six months ago or six years ago or sixty years ago. What's God doing in your life right now? Are you allowing the fact that you believe that this is the word of God speaking to you to change your life? And my hope isn't that you, if, as you wrestle with that, I don't want you to feel condemned. I want you to feel convicted and I want you to change because that's where the life is found. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all struggle with this at times, don't we? We all can struggle with this. And yet my prayer is, would we struggle with this less? Right? Would this be less and less in our life where we just read the word of God and then don't do anything about it? Right, Our goal every time, I want to read and then submit. And then I want to read some more and then submit. And I want to read some more and submit that God would change me to be more like him for his glory. Right, That's our prayer. Is it not for this church that we wouldn't only call the Bible God's word, but that we would submit to it, all of it, in the power of the Holy Spirit, over and over and over again, no matter the cost to our pride, no matter the cost to our reputation, instead desiring to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. And so what's the answer to the problem in the text? So we, do, we discuss the problem in quite um, passionate detail, and it gets laid out passionately in verses 6 through 10. And John Piper, I just had to throw this in there because he gives a great answer for the passion itself. He said this, and the reason we sense a kind of compassionate rage running beneath this letter is that someone had bewitched the Galatians to put themselves where the spirit belonged in the works of the law where faith in the cross belonged. And that fired Paul up because those things were in the wrong place place. And Piper's answer alludes to the problem itself, right? And if we take away all the fancy words and everything we said, what's basically the problem? The problem, the question that's before the Galatian church really is what is the gospel? What's the gospel? That's the question, right? And the answer is this. Paul already gave it to us in the first section. Look at verse 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. I want us to look at that phrase, who gave himself for our sins. An even more literal translation may be he um, who gave himself on our, on behalf of our sins. Who gave himself on behalf of our sins. And this is the kind of language that's used elsewhere in the New Testament to characterize the death of Christ, I'll give you one example, just for sake of time. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says this, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And then here's the link, right? Do you see it? And to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus talking. And what does Jesus say? Jesus portrays himself as a humble servant, right? Giving himself on the behalf of many. And what's this language rooted in? What's this language rooted in? What's Jesus pointing us to? He's pointing us to Isaiah 53. We're going to read Isaiah 53. And I want you just um, to indulge me um, and just close your eyes as I read and just listen. Listen to this um, eloquent and beautiful portrayal of what Christ has done for you. Isaiah 53, it starts like this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as not one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death that was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You can open your eyes. Behold your Savior. See, brothers and sisters, there's only one gospel And this is the gospel that the king of heaven and earth came to this tiny planet, not robed in majesty, but in humility as a baby. Nothing special to look at. People hated him. People rejected him, just as they had done for all of human history. He felt grief and sorrow and pain on this earth, both in his life, but most acutely in his death. As the king of creation, he allowed his own creation to nail him to a cross where he spilled his blood and died for us, taking the punishment for our sins, bearing our sins, paying our debt so that we could have true peace found in the only place we could never get on our own with God. A place where we can never be because of his perfection and our sin. It was only through Jesus being crushed in an, that an undeserved way was made for us to be with God. We did not deserve this path. We did not deserve unending peace and joy with God himself. Because every single one of us, like a dumb sheep that decided to go its own way, we all decided that we didn't need God And there has never been a worse rebellion in all of human history. In our hearts, my heart was at the center of that. And yet Jesus, in great love, died on a tree that he created, killed by people that he created and loved with the strength and the breath that he was giving to them to atone for the sin of the world. But death was not the end of his atonement, the perfect one who didn't deserve to die, yet who died in our place would not stay dead, but come back to life, defeating death, defeating sin, all according to the will of God the Father to his glory. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of his Father in heaven, intervening on our behalf That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that Jesus raised, that he was raised from the dead, we will be saved. Not by our works, but to him and him alone. There's only one gospel. Amen? Amen. There's a very interesting word um, in verse 4. The preposition hyper. Um, In the Greek, which generally gets translated on behalf of, sometimes, as it does here, also conveys the idea of substitution. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who substituted himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It was a substitution of blood. For all of my evil, for all of my sin, for all of my rebellion, it should have been my blood. It should have been me. It should have been you. And yet out of his great love, it was his blood Instead, in the substitution of blood, rescued us from this present evil age and moved us to the age of salvation by Christ and Christ alone. Nothing else to add, nothing else to do, nothing else to work towards. Today, if you are working to earn God's favor, please stop. Today, if you're working to clean your life up before you can run back into your Father's open arms, please stop, because that's not the gospel we follow. It's adding to it. The one gospel is contingent on the work of God and God alone. It was God, the Father, who ordained the plan. It was God, the Son, who carried out the plan, hung on a cross and resurrection. And it was God, the Holy Spirit, who seals the plan to the glory of the triune God forever and ever. Amen. And so then we remember verse 10. In being made new, in being given life, who do we look to? Whose opinion do you care about, Christians? Who do you seek to please with our thoughts and our actions? Who do we devote our time and our worship to? It's only God. He's the only one deserving because he gave us life, spiritual life, eternal life, true life found in him and him alone. We were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. One gospel, one God to his glory. What astonishing mercy. What astonishing grace. What astonishing love. There's no one greater than our God. Let's pray. God, our hearts this morning stand in awe of who you are and what you have done for us. God, it pulls my heart in a million different directions to a million different emotions, when I remember that you substituted yourself in my place, died the death that I deserved so that I could have life by being with you. Lord, this week, would our hearts not lose that awe? Would our minds And our souls constantly run back to this word that is given by you. That we would remember the gospel laid out so clearly in your word. And that we would live in this gospel. Would we live in this freedom? Would we live in this truth? Would we figure out, would we examine our own lives and figure out where are we adding to this? Where are we doing things that God didn't call us to do? Where have we made up our own rules? Things that we want to add or maybe things that we've never looked to explore and so we don't fully understand. And above all, God, will we be thankful for the cross and for the empty tomb? Lord, we come to you on this Thanksgiving day just so, so grateful. Grateful for what you have done for us and for your glory. And we pray that our lives would give you the glory that you so rightfully deserve. And would our hearts be compelled to worship you with everything that we've got. In your perfect, holy, matches, perfect, good, good name, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.